for everyone else, please turn to 1 John chapter 3, 1 John 3, 11 to 24. Exciting news about a groundbreaking ceremony, right? Yeah. Um, these things, we're in the stage where things happen fast, which is good. We've been long at a stage where things happen slow in terms of the building project, but um, stay tuned for announcements about when that'll be most likely a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, just a heads up, and we'll most likely ask all of you to bring shovels. Uh, won't be maybe like one or two important people, you know, Steve Gallo and, you know, Sherilyn Patton and just a couple important people. Uh, it'll be all of us bringing shovels and uh, digging in and uh, turning over the first dirt on that property. So, um, praise the Lord for His kindness to this church in, in many, many ways, uh, including this property. 1 John 3, 11 to 24 is our text for the morning, so please follow along as I read. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. And reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. And just as he has commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. I've entitled this message, How Love for One Another Reassures Us. This is a book about assurance, reassurance over and over again. John wants us to know that we are children of God if we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ if we have this pattern of our life of obeying his commandments, and if we have this pattern in our life of loving one another, the brotherhood, the body of Christ. And so this is one of the passages that shows that when we look at our love for one another, imperfect as it may be, but when we look at the fact that we do want good for our brothers and sisters, we do want to meet needs, we do want to be a blessing to them, we can look at that and say, that is from God. That's a sign that I've been changed. So again, how love for one another reassures us, our own hearts. Some of us come from Christian environments, 
Maybe I'll put that in quotes because maybe some of them aren't actually Christian environments. Some of us come from environments where maybe Christ is referred to, maybe it's a church, some sort of ministry, some sort of family you grew up in, and there was little to no talk about human depravity and sin. Really, evangelism amounted to, hey, do you want some purpose for your life? Try Jesus. We know those environments. And some of us, again, were raised in those environments. People weren't told your problem, everyone's problem before coming to Christ, is that we are rebellious toward God and have wicked hearts and want our own ways. That, that message was not preached. The fact that that message was not preached demonstrates that the holiness of God was not preached. God wasn't seen as holy and righteous and demanding that all of his creatures be the same way. He was just kind of like Santa, you know, the fuzzy grandpa who, you know, knows whether you're naughty or nice and, you know, that kind of God. We came out of those environments, a lot of us. Sin wasn't preached faithfully. The holiness of God wasn't preached faithfully. And therefore, the beauty of the cross wasn't understood, wasn't fully grasped by us. We know that. And so the, the thing that an unbeliever needs most is to understand that they are in sin, God is holy, but God is also merciful and sent His Son to do something about our sin problem if we would repent and believe in Him. God did something about that. So, so a lot of us come from environments where those, that kind of fuzzy Christianity was taught. No sin, no repentance, no holiness of God, just kind of Jesus is here to be a life coach for you and he wants you to, you know, have five homes and retire well. That's, what, that's the gospel message. We know that's not true. But here's my fear. Now that we are in Christ, and now that we have come to a true understanding of the gospel, I am a sinner before coming to Christ. And God has done something about that, and He has taken away the penalty of my sin and the power of the sin. He has forgiven me. I am His child. I am one with Him. I will be with Him forever. Now that we've come to that truth, sometimes we swing the pendulum the other way and we constantly think of ourselves as the sinners and we never rest our heart knowing that we are God's children. We keep thinking, He's holy, I'm not, I don't know if I'm really, you know, qualified for heaven. Well, let me kind of break the news to you. You're not. You don't go to heaven because you've qualified yourself for heaven. You go to heaven because He has qualified you for heaven out of His grace. And He knows that we will still sin. The, the presence of sin isn't yet eradicated. It is being eradicated all the more as we go day by day in Christ. But sometimes we swing the pendulum the other way and we think, I didn't understand sin and the holiness of God before I was a Christian. I wish I would have. Now I am a Christian and all I can think about is my sin and God is holy. I still think He's angry with me. Christian, God the Father is not angry with His children. He may discipline them, Hebrews 12, but why does He do that? Because He loves them. 
And this is a book trying to get you to see and get me to see you are God's child. Stop trying to audition for his family. He has adopted you. And what I love about the book of 1 John, it assumes that we still have sin. 1 John 1, our passage here, 1 John 3. It knows that we still have sin and struggles, but he wants us to be reassured that we are his children. Here's really the point of this passage. When it comes to our own love for one another, we can know that we're God's children. Even when we consider how we've fallen short in this area. So when we look at the fact that we love our brothers and sisters, we can know that that comes from the fact that we're God's children. He's made us that way, remade us that way, if you will. We've been born again. Even when we consider how we fall short in love, we can still know that we're his children. And that's what this passage will show us. So for our outline, two reassurances of our salvation when we consider our love for one another. Two reassurances of our salvation when we consider our love for one another. And I'll give you the points ahead of time and then we'll go through them. First, the first reassurance of our salvation when we consider our own love for one another. First, when we love, it proves that we're God's children. That'll be verses 11 to 18. Secondly, when we know that we haven't loved well, God has the final say. And that'll bring some reassurance as well. That's 19 to 24. So first, when we love, it proves that we're children of God. Verses 11 to 18. The, the key verse for this, the, the verse that kind of sums it up here, is verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. How do you know that you've passed from death into life? How do you know that you've gone from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ? Because I have a love for my brothers and sisters that I didn't have before. I have a love for others, the children of God, that I didn't have before. Before I loved me. Now I know because he's worked inside of me a certain love for others. When we love, it proves that we are children of God. Verse 11 is kind of the umbrella statement of these verses, kind of the overarching statement, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. From the beginning, John uses that word a lot, doesn't he? John 1, he's used it in 1 John 1, our book here, he's used it in chapter 2, specifically 2.7, talking about love. Remember when he said this, beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment you've had from the beginning is to love one another. Pastor Josh read to us from Leviticus 19, arguing for love among the community of God's people. So this is not a new thing. The new part of it is loving now like Jesus loved. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then he gives an example of the opposite of love. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now you might ask the question, why does, why does John, why does the Holy Spirit inspire John to highlight Cain? There are a lot of murderers in the Bible. Why not pick one of them? 
I think the reason is because John's talking about the family of God. And so he goes to someone who was in a family, Cain, who murdered his brother. It kind of brings that idea that when you do something against the family of God, that is something after the pattern of Satan, not of Christ. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one. In John chapter 8, Jesus said that the evil one, Satan, the devil, is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. I think that's, that's a reference to what Satan did in Cain as he murdered Abel. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. This is a certain jealousy, not for Abel's possessions. It's a jealousy that's envy of another person's righteousness. Have you ever seen someone who gets angry at a righteous person? Have you ever had a, I know some of you have, have family members who just don't like you? Why? They can't put their finger on it. They just don't like that you do the right thing. And there's a certain anger that's drawn out of them. That's nothing new. In fact, John tells us, verse 13, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. It's interesting how so often a Christian will be wronged, someone, they'll be hated by someone, um, someone in their family, someone at their workplace. You, you go off to college, some of you young people, and you think, yeah, I'm a nice person, I care about people, and I want the best for them, and you sit in a circle and, you know, on a road trip or something, and you start talking about your beliefs and things like that, and um, you talk to them about what you believe about Jesus, what you believe about the scriptures, and, and they know that you're generally an obedient person, and, and there's just a couple people in the group that just do not like you. And, and you ask yourself, why? I haven't harm them and like why are they so angry at me don't be surprised brothers that the world hates you the world is in the power of the evil one they follow the pattern of the evil one and one characteristic of the evil one is he hates righteous people so john's putting forth kind of the opposite of what he wants us to be that he's setting forth the antithesis of brotherly love, and he shows Cain and says, this is what the world's like. You don't be like that. Now, right here, some of you might be tempted to say, like, I'm checking out. This doesn't apply to me. I've never murdered another Christian. Okay, so this isn't about me. Well, we know that our Lord taught, and he linked in Matthew chapter 5, murder with hatred, and he linked that to anger. Remember the passage that was read earlier in our service, holding a grudge against another brother or sister, being embittered against someone, holding on to that, stewing on that, that is the exact type of thing that Cain did. That has no place in the family of God. What Leviticus 19 tells to do, to go and speak to that brother, to have a clear conversation about that, to aim at reconciliation, and to have that bitterness done away with. That bitterness looks like Cain. 
not like Christ. Christ is the one who speaks truth, who's forbearing, who speaks the truth in love, who is patient, who is a reconciler by nature. That, when you do that, you go, he's made me like that. He's put that in my heart to want to reconcile, to want to right this wrong, to want to have this conversation, to want to be back together and to be at peace. That's characteristic of a believer. So when you have that in your life, you say, that comes from someone. That comes from my father. Verse 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. This is literally giving us a sign of our salvation, that we've passed from death to life. We love the brothers. They care about people in my church, care about people that are my brothers and sisters. I want what's best for them. I want them to thrive and to grow and to be a great example and to enjoy the favor of God and to commune with Him. I want that for them. And when they have needs, I want to meet those needs, however I'm able to meet them. When you, when you think like that, that comes from somewhere. It comes from God Himself. God the Father it comes from His Spirit. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So someone who, you see here, John also makes that link. It's not just about murder, but let's, let's connect that to hatred. There's a hatred in your heart. Now, you wouldn't say that you hate this person in, their, in your heart. Hey, how do you feel about so-and-so? I hate them. We don't do that. We hide it. How do you feel about that person? Oh, don't even get me started. Oh, I can feel the love coming out of the heart right now. That's like Cain. And that should not be the pattern, is not the pattern of a child of God. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So you see the connection there. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life. So you could also say, and no hater of another Christian has eternal life. Because that's not characteristic of the life that Jesus came to give. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You want to know what love looks like? It looks like self-sacrifice. It looks like giving of yourself. And where do we see that most clearly? In Jesus Christ. Coming and dying for an imperfect people. And, and we, we are very, um, we're experts at making excuses. We, we kind of um, follow in the footsteps of our first father, Adam. Uh, why'd, you, why'd you eat? See, see that woman right there? who you gave me, that's why I ate. No, you ate because you sinned. Yes, she tempted, but you also ate. So, so we're very good at making excuses. We're very good for excusing our sin. So there's, there's this idea sometimes that, that wrong-thinking Christians have 
that because someone did something so wrong to you or to your family or to, you know, hurt you in this way or was unkind or did the wrong thing here, that you can hold the grudge because they're wrong. Yeah, that is not a Christian way of thinking. That is not how children of God think when they're thinking rightly. By this we know love that he, down, he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Listen, what if Jesus stopped loving you when you did something wrong? Oh, perish the thought. Well, yeah. So then that's the way we love others when they've done something wrong toward us. Or, not, not just when someone's wronged us, but what about in having needs? There are needs that brothers and sisters have, and you know that how God supplies those needs? He doesn't just like rain money or or words down from heaven. He, he gives us those resources to give to other people. He gives us words to speak to them, gives us time to give to them, gives us resources to, to help meet their needs. That's how he does it. And so he sacrificed for our good. So we sacrifice for the good of others. This is the pattern. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? See a brother or sister in need, and it's a need that you can meet, but you close your heart to them? There's not a love for them? How do you then say that God's love abides in you? Where is it? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Now, notice the connection between verse 14 and verse 18. Verse 14, he wants you to be assured. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So there's a statement of a fact. It's happened. You're grounded. You are a child of God. You're his. Now the exhortation comes in verse 18. So little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So you are what you are. Now keep being what you are is what he's doing. You are a child of God because you love your brothers and sisters. So continue. Let's make sure that you're loving not just in word, but in deed and in truth. In deed and truth. Indeed, you love in tangible ways. You've helped this family with money. You've helped that person with your time. You've gone and talked to this person and found out what they need and you seek to supply it. That's loving indeed, among a number of other things. And then loving in truth. You love in truth, in righteous, in right ways. So, so the professing Christian 19-year-old guy doesn't try to sleep with his girlfriend because he says, I have Christian love for you. If you do, you will prize her holiness and her purity, and you won't try to do that. That's not loving in truth. That's loving in deceit and in death. So, we love as children of God in deed and in truth, in tangible ways and expressions, and in righteousness based on God's truth. 
But I want you to get the, the point here. Again, verse 14. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. If God has put inside of you a love for one another, as imperfect as it may be, but if in your heart is a love for one another, that is a sign that you're his child. Now, why would John feel the need to write this to these people? I've told you over and over again, and I'll say it over and over again through the rest of the book, you can't understand this book without understanding the people that left these churches, the departed. These people did not love the brothers. They tried to get the brothers and sisters to believe something different about Jesus and the apostles taught. They tried to get the brothers and sisters to to come to their teaching rather than what John and the other apostles had, had been indicating to them. They evidently thought more about their own secret new knowledge than they did about meeting needs of Christians who were in need. So these departed people are constantly being explicitly referred to and then sometimes just it's assumed that he's talking about these departed people. And so it's really interesting. Now that they've left, John says to the remaining group, now you all love one another. And that's nothing new. Jesus actually did this. This is fascinating to me. So, so get, the, get what's happening here in 1 John. They've left, and now John's saying, love one another. You know that the fact that you do love one another is a sign that you're a child of God. Now, now keep loving one another in deed and in truth. Okay, so go back to John 13 real quick. We're in the upper room. And go to verse 31. Uh, 34. John 13, 34. Jesus talking to the disciples. This is where John gets this. He was actually present when it was first stated by the Lord. This sounds a lot like our passage. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I mean, this is, you might read First John and think, where does John get this? He gets it from right here. Jesus, his Lord, told him, you love one another, and if you do love one another like I've loved you, the world will know you're my disciples. John's telling us if you love like Jesus Christ loved, not only will the world know that you're his disciple, you will know that you're his disciple. Now, what's interesting to me is right before Jesus said this, guess what happened? Look at the previous section. Judas departed. Judas left. So you've got someone that did not love his brothers or his Lord, but claimed to for a while, who left. Now Jesus has the 11. And he says, now listen, you all, you love one another the same way I've loved you. When you do this, the world will know you're my followers. Here in 1 John, in our passage, the departed have left 
And John takes the remaining church and says, listen, you love the same way Jesus has loved you. And not only will the world know that you're his disciples, you will know that you are his follower. That's the connection here between what John heard from Jesus and what he's telling this church. When we love, it proves that we're children of God. Back to 1 John chapter 3. So Canyon Bible Church, you have opened your home to people who needed a roof and a bed. You have done that. We're almost nine years old now, this church. You've opened your home. Many of you have helped one another out financially. Many of you have driven over to someone's house in a time of need to be a comfort. You pray earnestly for one another. I can't go to a coffee shop in Prescott without seeing one of you meeting with another one of you. Praise the Lord for that. Loving one another, trying to do one another good, edify one another. You've wept together. You've shown up at events for one another to celebrate one another. Some of you are very, very busy, and you make sure that you have got a number of weekends in the year and a number of nights throughout the month to go and serve students so they would know the gospel and they would be discipled in the way of Christ. Many of you put in hours to prep for teaching so that you can do good to those in your groups that you lead. I, we could just make the rest of the service me giving you example after example. But you have a love for one another, and that comes from somewhere. It comes from the Father. It looks like the love that Jesus the Son had for us, and we'll see at the end of our passage. It comes from the Spirit. You demonstrate what Jesus has demonstrated to us. So, when we think about the fact that our love for one another proves that we're children of God, I think by way of application, there are a few things that pop up in these verses. First of all, keep loving sacrificially. He said that to us, right? In verse 18, keep loving sacrificially. There may be some of you that do love sacrificially and have loved sacrificially, but maybe you've kind of just been knocked off track for a time. Um, do you have any margin in your life to meet someone else's needs? Hey, can you do this? Ah, too busy. That's the constant answer. C can you help um, give to this? Ah, I don't have any money. Well, you have nine cars. Um, so do you have any margin of time, resources? Uh, are you learning the scriptures not just for yourself but to be a blessing to other people? So keep loving sacrificially. Keep seeking to meet needs. Keep seeking to care for your brothers and sisters. Also, don't want to move on to the next point without saying this. The application that John's driving home here in these verses is for you simply to know that because you love others, it's a sign that you've been given that love by God. And so there's a certain rest that we should have too. So yes, there's a certain call to action in verse 18. Keep loving sacrificially, but there's also a call to 
I do want what's best for them. I, I do want to meet needs. I have been doing that. Good. Remind yourself that that's been given to you by God because you're His child. Okay, so rest in that. So our first reassurance is that our love for one another proves that we're children of God. Point number two, but we don't always love perfectly, do we? And sometimes we fail. So where's the reassurance then for that? Point number two, when we know that we haven't loved well, God has the final say. I love this. John almost anticipates what some of you are doing right now. Well, I know that I have loved people and I know that I've sought to meet needs, but I can also be real selfish. I don't know that I'm right with God. John anticipates you saying that. Verse 19. Well, actually look at verse 20 real quick. Verse 20 speaks of our hearts condemning us. And this this is all under the idea of love for one another still. Our hearts condemning us and therefore thinking that, no, I'm not his child. I'm not right with him. And this is what so many of you struggle with. So when John says, hey, if you've been given this love and this idea, that you, this heart that says, I want to go and meet needs. I want to help other brothers and sisters. You're a child of God. John knows and I know that you cannot rest there. So many of you will say then, ah, but I don't do it perfectly, and I I don't think I'm his child. You do that. There is an accusing conscience that we have, and it troubles us, and it keeps us from enjoying our Father and the security that we have. And John knows that. That's why he writes these next verses. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So John wants reassured hearts before God. Verse 20, for, and here's why I want reassured hearts, because whenever our heart condemns us and our hearts do condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. This is one of the most encouraging passages in the New Testament, and I don't think people understand it enough. When you're told that you've got a certain righteous pattern that God's given you, and that's true, you, there's something about it that says, yeah, but, but, but I, I still mess up. Okay. When that happens, know that your heart is condemning you. It, it's like this. Just go with me for a second. I know it's kind of weird, but your heart is taken out of your body, Okay you're still alive. I don't know how. Just go with me. It's not a perfect illustration, okay? (laughs) Your heart is the prosecutor, you know, wearing a dark suit, you know, with his briefcase and files, and you are the defendant sitting there in an orange jumpsuit, you know. You're a defendant, and your heart pulls out the papers and goes before the judge who is God and says, he could have met this need, but he chose to do his own thing here, and that's, that's, that's not good, Your Honor. And then your heart says, yes, I, I know he did that good thing, but um, th- there was 2% of him that actually wanted 
kind of to be lauded for that effort. Um, and there was some pride in that good thing that he did. And, and the heart just keeps prosecuting and prosecuting and prosecuting. And you're sitting there as the defendant going, yeah, yeah. This prosecutor doesn't even have to lie. He's right. Verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. It's the picture of the judge standing up and saying, you're done with the arguments. I know everything there is to know about this person. And the idea here in the context of this passage is that that prosecutor gets shut up and God the judge has adopted you, this defendant, as his child. God's mercy is greater than our sin. That's what you believed when you first came to Christ. I'm just asking you to keep believing that. Wherever our heart condemns us, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. So, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, this is John saying, so, so our heart's not the one that can render the verdict. It can't condemn. Only God can condemn, and He doesn't. So, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. The prosecutor isn't the judge, even when the prosecutor's right. God is the judge, and this judge is merciful to his children. I want to give you another example of this. Turn to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah 3, right before your New Testament, hit Matthew, go left, you got Malachi, then further left, and you got Zechariah. Zechariah 3, The people are back in the promised land after their exile. This is a good thing. This is great. Zechariah is calling them to continue in the covenant relationship with God. But there's a problem with this people still. I know you've disciplined them, God. You brought them into exile. You brought them back. I know they're all happy and want to keep following you now. We'll do it this time. But Satan enters. And he points out the problem that still exists with these people. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So get the picture. Joshua the high priest, Satan might have been personally accusing him. He's not a faithful high priest. Look at how he sins against you. I think it's more that He's accusing Joshua on behalf of the people. So 
Joshua represents the people. This is Satan's way of not just accusing Joshua, but the people of God also. Either way, same truth still applies. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, now the Lord's the judge, Satan's the prosecutor here. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who's chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? You see what God's doing here? God's telling Satan, enough with the accusations. This is a brand that was about to go out. It didn't look like a strong fire. It wasn't a lot of righteousness coming. But this is a brand that, that I've plucked. There, there is life here. Now, we know from Revelation 12, Luke 22, Satan accuses. This is one of his tactics. And, and Satan is a liar from the beginning, but he actually doesn't need to lie when he accuses us before God. He doesn't need to. He can just tell the truth. And it'll be proven that, yes, we still do sin. But, but notice why... Joshua is going to be accepted by God and why the people of Israel are going to be accepted by God because they've been chosen by him. When God chooses, Satan's accusations fall on deaf ears. Verse 3, now Joshua is standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to, jo- said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So I've taken your iniquity away, and I will clothe you with righteousness now. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by, and the angel of the Lord solemnly, look at this word, assured Joshua. God's mercy is greater than Israel's sin. God's mercy is greater than Joshua's sin. God's mercy is greater than your sin, child of God. His mercy is more. Back to 1 John. And as you're turning there, let me just redo these words from the Apostle Paul. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. God renders the verdict. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. If Jesus has died for your sins, guess what? You will not pay for your sins. So when Satan accuses or when your heart accuses, Jesus has already done something about the sins that are being brought up by Satan, by your heart. Jesus has done something about it. And listen, God is greater than Satan. God is greater than your heart. The judge is greater than the prosecutor. The judge renders the verdict. And this judge has declared you righteous. Isn't this good news? I I praise the Lord for this. 
When we know that we haven't loved well, God has the final say. And and then he goes to verse 22, seemingly to a whole different subject, prayer. Where's prayer fit in here? And, And this is such the pattern of God. When he reassures you of your relationship with him, he then calls you to prayer. Now come to me for resources. You want to grow in holiness? You want to grow in love for one another? Come to me. I'll give that. The Lord's Prayer, Luke 11. Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus told them to start like this. Our Father who's in heaven. Start with your relationship with God and then go and ask Him for the things needed. This is the pattern. When we're reassured, we're often then called to prayer. Verse 22, so whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments to do what pleases Him. So we've got this new pattern, this new life. We've been forgiven. We've been adopted as children of God. So go to your Father for the things that you need. I need to grow my love for one another. Go to your Father and ask Him for that. I need to, I want to grow in righteousness and even obey His commandments more than I already do. I want to live rightly before Him. Go to your Father and ask Him for that. This is so good. And then John summarizes verse 23. Verses 23 to 24 are kind of a summary statement of what He's been teaching us in the book. Remember, there were these three problems that those departed had. They did not teach the right thing about Christ. They did not have a pattern of obeying God's commands. And they did not love one another. And John's saying, you all, you do. You know the right thing about Christ. Continue in what I've taught you, John says. Continue in what we've, the apostles, have been sent to teach you. Continue in the right teaching about Christ. You obey his commandments. That is your pattern. I know you sin. Go back and confess your sin, and he's faithful and just to forgive you of all your unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. I know you sin, but your pattern is obedience to God. Take comfort and love one another. Keep loving one another. Don't be like Cain. Don't be like those departed. Keep loving one another in deed and in truth. And he brings us back to those three realities. And this is his commandment, verse 23, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. We believe in the truth about his son, Jesus Christ. We believe in what God has given to the apostles about Jesus Christ and what the apostles have given to us about Jesus Christ. We don't go off into wonky interpretations about Jesus' life. Well, he just appeared to be a man. No, he was a man, says the apostles. And the apostles are telling you what Jesus told them. So believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Believe in what you've been taught about Jesus Christ from the apostles. This is a commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And then third, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. It's kind of a little summary statement of what John's been teaching throughout the book, kind of given to us in these two verses before he moves on to another topic. But the thing to see from specifically verses 19 to 21 is that when we know we haven't loved well, 
God has the final say. And God's our Father, and He's merciful. So, by way of application, Christian, stop taking yourself to trial. Stop it. The verdict's been rendered. Innocent, righteous, that's called the doctrine of justification. You're declared righteous. Stop taking yourself to trial. So, Andrew, are you saying that a Christian shouldn't be concerned about their sin anymore? No, 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 no. Don't put words into my mouth. I'm saying you take your sin and you bring it to where God tells you to bring it. I'm going to read you that again. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it's not saying deny your sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what you do with your sin. So you don't take yourself to trial day after day after day. See, I don't think he's really righteous. See, I don't think he's really your child. See, I've got some things against him. You don't go to trial anymore. You take your sin and you go to your father's throne. I can't remember who it was and I'll butcher the quote, but the idea was the only person that dares wake a king in the middle of the night is his child. (laughs) You as a child of the king, you take it to your heavenly father and you say, here's what I've done. I know you hate it. I know I hate it. Would you please forgive me? Would you please keep changing me? And the answer is always yes. He's faithful and just to cleanse us from sin, forgive us of all unrighteousness. So I'm not saying don't worry about your sin anymore. I'm just saying stop bringing yourself to trial and bring yourself to the throne of your Father who's merciful. So stop going to trial against yourself. You've been declared already his child. The case is closed. The the verdict's been rendered. There's no retrial. And as a child of God, let's notice the exhortation to us in verse 22 to pray. If you're here and you're thinking, I'm so thankful for the mercy of God. I'm thankful that he's my father. Even when I sin, I know that that can be dealt with. I'm thankful for the verdict that he's rendered. If you're thankful for all that, then go out and pray. Ask him to keep working in you. Pray for your brothers and sisters. We're going to see this at the end of 1 John 5, and I, I can't wait to get there. I've, I've been studying ahead. This is so good. Our prayers do something. They are powerful. I just turned the page like I'm going to teach you through that chapter. I'm not. I'm going to stop. You know the temptation I have. Trust me, it's coming. Our prayers are powerful. So one application here from verse 22 is pray. Ask God for things. Ask him to work in you to meet needs. Ask him to make you effective for your brothers and sisters. Ask God to help you love your brothers and sisters well, to forgive, to meet needs, all that love encompasses. Pray and watch him act. So we've seen two reassurances of our salvation that come from our love for one another. First, when we love, it proves that we're children of God. And second, when we know that we haven't loved well, God has the final say. 
I want to finish by reading to you a little bit of John Stott and his words on this passage, which I think, I know they've warmed my heart. I hope that will warm yours as well. He refers back to verse 20, whenever our hearts condemn us. He says, the suggestion seems to be that it may not be either an unusual or infrequent experience for the Christian's serene assurance to be disturbed. So he's saying it, it seems as though John knows that our hearts accuse us a lot and that disturbs us. Sometimes, Stott says, the accusations of our conscience or heart will be true accusations. And sometimes they'll be false. In either case, the inner voice is not to overcome us. We are rather to set our hearts at rest in God's presence. We can, therefore, appeal from our consciences to God, who is greater and more knowledgeable. And I love that, just in line of that courtroom illustration. As the prosecutor, our heart is just reading off all the things we've done wrong. It's as if we're allowed to interrupt and say, hold on a second, as we're the defendant. And we say, God, can you answer this? We can therefore appeal from our conscience to God, who is greater and more knowledgeable. Indeed, he knows everything, including our secret motives and deepest resolves, and will be, listen to this, and will be more merciful toward us than our own heart. God will be more merciful toward us than our own heart is. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for your wisdom in giving us this book. We need this letter of 1 John. And the fact that we have it is such a kindness from you. Holy Spirit, thank you for authoring it. Now, Holy Spirit, preach it to our hearts so that we know where we stand. Father, reassure us by the truths that we've heard today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.